0: Take your Bibles today and go to the book of John. We're going to continue looking at this theme that there is life in Jesus, the Son of God. And we're going to be in John chapter 13 today as we have really turned the corner here towards the latter portion of the book of John. And we did that last week by wrapping up John chapter 12. As I told you then, the things from here on out are kind of the closing parts of John's gospel as, of course, we're pushing towards the cross, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus that will come at the end of this book. And now Jesus has turned his attention uh, to his disciples. His public ministry has come to an end, and he's interested now and concerned with spending time with his disciples, growing them in their faith and trust in him and setting, we'll see today setting for them an example of the things that are to come and the things that they are to follow him in. We'll be in John chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 1 through 17, a little bit of a larger chunk today, and we see the king's service. I invite you to follow along as we read our text here today. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed, Feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Father, thank you for the time we have now to look into your word. And we ask that as we take this time together, you would use your word in our hearts today. It would help me not to get in the way of what you want to do here today, you would show us once again who Jesus is, why he has come, who you are. Jesus, the Son of God and God himself, is our creator, redeemer, and king. Yet he is also the one who has served us in the greatest way possible. Lord, show us today the need we have in our lives to place faith in Jesus and Jesus alone and the calling on the lives of disciples to serve one another as you served us. Help us to live out this calling each and every day. We pray that today we would walk out of this place different than we came in, because we have heard your truth proclaimed, and you have done your work in our hearts. your name we pray, amen. We, the people of the United States, pride ourselves in our nation and over the years, have prided ourselves in our system of government. And the working theory behind this system of government is that those in power are elected by the people to work on behalf of the people. And theoretically, if you wish to discuss issues with your representatives, Congress members, or otherwise, you can do that, right? That's the working theory. Now, in practice, the question is, how effective is this system? You pick up your phone to call your congressman today, and I guarantee you, you're not going to reach him directly. No, instead, you'll talk to a lower-level staffer who will assure you that your message will be passed along. However, you will most likely never hear back from him personally, and you are left to hope that he gets the message. As the U.S. government has grown bigger throughout the years, it leaves many of us wondering how how many of those in power actually care about the people they're elected to represent. You do realize, by the way, next year we have the wonderful privilege of going through the election season once again. And though may it may be a good system, human limitations, inequalities, and biases have certainly exposed its limitations throughout the years. This has led to many who become jaded about the entire system, fueling innumerable conversations week in and week out around the table at the diner just down the street, right? Right? As, as we gather, to solve the problems one at a time. But the kingdom of God is unlike any kingdom of men in immeasurable ways. The differences begin with the king himself. God, our personal creator and sustainer, took on flesh and came, the scriptures tell us, in the likeness of men. He is 100% God and 100% man, Jesus The Son of God and God himself came to earth to live and die and rise again for us. He came to seek and to save those lost in the darkness of sin. He came to give life to the lifeless. He came, the scriptures tell us, to serve. He came to call people to himself for a transformed eternity and transformed existence in this temporal life. All throughout this gospel, John has shown us there is life in Jesus, the Son of God. And as, this, as John's gospel continues now to drive us deeper into the shadow of the cross, we now see Jesus, the King of kings, living out his selfless love for us. Here, Jesus serves his disciples in this passage before us today and at the same time gives a beautiful picture of his entire life, ministry, and work. And he calls on all who find life in him to do the same with his power and ability. So what you see in this passage before you today is that because of Jesus' selfless service to mankind, selfless service to mankind, I must turn to him for eternal salvation and the power to live in service of his kingdom. Jesus' service by being made in in the form of man and dying on the cross is is what gives us the ability to find eternal life in him. Without Jesus Christ, you and I have no hope for eternal salvation. Without Jesus Christ, you and I cannot be made into his image. Without Jesus Christ, we, as Paul would say, of all men are to be most pitied. Because of Jesus, our eternity can be different. Because of Jesus, we have hope and life. And because of Jesus and his example of self-sacrifice and his power that he gives us, we can live for the glory of God. And more than that, God doesn't just call you to live for him and say, hey, you, you as a disciple live for me. He gives you the power and the ability through the Holy Spirit in order for you to do that. That's what makes the kingdom of God different. It's, it's, it's a, a kingdom given to his glory and empowered by him for that glory. So let's take this passage today and look, we'll look at it in three major sections here and see what it is that Jesus does as he gathers here with his disciples and what, what it means and what it, what it means for us today. What does he call us today to do in light of these things? In verses 1 through 5 of this passage You see the example that Jesus lays forth, and we're confronted very first of all in this passage, in this chapter, with the love that Jesus has for his disciples. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus' public ministry has come to an end, the Jews in Jerusalem, we read there in John chapter 12, celebrated Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. They hailed him as the conqueror coming to reign. Yet when Jesus failed to deliver on their ideals of what the Messiah should be, their belief faltered in him as it had so often over the past three years of his ministry. So we read that Jesus withdrew in order to strengthen his disciples' faith As he prepares to face the cross. And now he gathers with his disciples to observe the Passover feast. A Passover is a crucial time for the nation of Israel. It was instituted on the night that Jesus delivered his people from the nation of Egypt. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights as we've worked our way through the book of Exodus, we just started talking about this passage this past week. And I said, hey, this is really great how God works these things out. So keep this in your brain as we get to Sunday. Because here we are looking at Jesus and his disciples celebrating what would be in his ministry the third Passover they celebrated together. Because God sent on the nation of Egypt Ten plagues that were used in that in the in the life and in the nation of Egypt to free his people from slavery to that to the nation of Egypt and from Pharaoh. It was on this night, the Passover night, that the climatic events of the Exodus account of Israel's delivery came to a head. And God levied his greatest judgment yet against Pharaoh and Egypt that night, in that he was going to slay all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. However, God had promised to make a distinction between the Egyptians and his people. We read in Exodus chapter 11, verse 7, But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And then you read in Exodus chapter 12, that there's a method or a means that this was carried out. God "...commanded his people to kill a lamb without blemish and to paint the blood of that lamb on their doorposts and on their lentils." And God, seeing this, he promised, would pass over those homes, staying his judgment upon their sin. Because the blood of the lamb covered their sin. That lamb paid the price of redemption for the firstborn in that home." And the the Passover is is not just a a wonderful thing that God did for his people then, it is a beautiful picture and prophecy of what Jesus Christ would do years later. The Passover was commanded to be observed each year in remembrance of what God had done, but it also was to point the people's minds not just back to God's deliverance, but but to point their expectations ahead to what God would one day do, redeeming them from their sin. And so here you have the Passover being observed by Jesus and his disciples once again. It it occurred at the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was also a feast that was ordained in remembrance of what God had done here for his people. And so Jesus and his disciples, like all Jews, gathered to celebrate this meal. And the wonderful truth is this. This Passover would be the last God-ordained Passover in the history of the nation of Israel. Because once Jesus goes to the cross, not long after this Passover meal, there's no need to be looking ahead to what, Jesus, what God is going to do through the Messiah. The work is finished. And so it is at this feast, by the way, that, that's often referred to as the Last Supper, that Jesus, that Jesus initiates what we call the Lord's Supper in which the new covenant is looked at, the covenant that's ratified by the blood shed by Jesus Christ on the cross. And one, by the way, that we as a church still celebrate to this day. So Jesus is here now preparing, it says, to meet his hour. He says here, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. We saw that shift take place in John chapter 12 when the Greeks came to to see Jesus. He started talking about how his hour had come. It was the hour of his sacrifice, followed eventually by his resurrection and then his ascension back to the Father. He would return to heaven to be at the Father's side, having completed the mission. Jesus was sent to pay the price of man's redemption from sin, and once that was paid, his work on earth would be done. And as he prepares to die, rise, and depart, we see at the end of this verse, his love for his disciples. Think about these 12 men who were following Jesus for the last three years. They had given their lives to following Jesus. He had called them to follow, and and they had obeyed. Now, they didn't always understand what he said. They didn't always serve him faithfully, but all of them, save one, were committed to him. We read here that he loved them to the end. He loved them with an undying, perfecting love that went all the way to the end of his earthly ministry and into eternity. They have been called by him to a unique and incredible calling. Theirs was an incredible experience. Imagine walking for three years and learning under Jesus, the Messiah. They were the personal objects of his love. He loves them, John tells us, with an agape love, a preferring love that, that chooses to love its object. So therefore, Jesus, in this love, wishes to instruct these men and to show them how they are to continue to live for him. Jesus cares about their state. He knows the coming confusion and fear they will experience, and he seeks to to strengthen them in himself over these next few chapters. So everything that you see in this chapter, in John chapter 13, and, and in the coming chapters as Jesus continues to talk to his disciples, know that it all goes back to this motivating love that he talks about here in John chapter 13 and verse 1. So this, this idea that Jesus loved them to the end doesn't just, doesn't just count for these 17 verses we're going to talk about today. It goes on and on and on throughout these chapters. And so as John presents to us now Jesus who loves his disciples, he now shows us in verses 2 through 5 under this example the service that he renders to his disciples. that Jesus, as God, knows all things. Jesus knows the state of Judas' heart given to Satan to betray this man he claimed to follow. The night following the Lord's rebuke of Judas after the anointing of Jesus by Mary in, in the first part of John 12, Judas sought out the religious leaders accepting 30 pieces of silver as the bribe, the price, to betray Jesus to them. Jesus knew this is what was to happen. It was in God's sovereign plan and under his control. He also knew, tells us, that all things have been given to him. He had been given his mission by God the Father. He had been given approval by God the Father because he and the Father are one. There is nothing that the Father has that the Son does not. He had come from the Father and he again would return to the Father. However, Jesus humbled himself, came in the form, came in love and in the form of a servant in the body of man in and, and an act that perfectly pictures what Jesus, the Lord of all, had done. Jesus now rises here to practically serve his disciples. And, and to perhaps better understand the context here, you need to understand the historical, the setting of what's going on. Now, you understand that when this took place almost 2,000 years ago, travel was a little bit different than it is today. They didn't have cars and carriages and things that people would travel on. Typically, people walked everywhere they went, and they didn't typically have these roads or sidewalks that we might have today. They, they would walk on dirty, dusty terrain, and they would walk not even in closed shoes, Right? They didn't have any, you know, air peters back then that they wore to play basketball in, okay? They wore sandals. And these sandals would let in the dirt and the grime and the dust of the day. So, this would naturally lead to people's feet becoming dirty as the day rolled on. And so, when they entered a home, they would need to take care of that. Because especially here, when you gather around a meal, if you remember, it's been several passages ago, as we looked, I believe, at the beginning of John 12, um, People reclined at the table. Typically, their feet would be out behind them. So, though they're not right in your face, they still aren't underneath a table like they are, you know, today when we sit around a table. So, therefore, it was the job of a servant or one in the home of lower status generally to wash the feet of all who came into that home as guests. And sometimes people would take care of their own feet depending on the circumstances. But the things should be there for that. And this wasn't merely a nice custom. It was considered a duty and a necessity. Yet, as Jesus and his disciples have gathered in what is known as the upper room for the Passover feast that would become known as the Last Supper, this responsibility has been neglected. And if you know, again, some of the context and some of the things that have happened, it's not completely unsurprising because the disciples have previously engaged in debates with one another over who is going to be the greatest among them in the kingdom of God. They all wished places of honor in that glorious day when God's kingdom would come. So to stoop to washing feet goes against those ambitions for them to be great in God's kingdom, right? Because that means you have to place yourself as the lowest below everyone else. So their feet go unwashed. It's almost like a defiant statement, right? That nobody's going to do that. Nobody's going to take the initiative. Nobody's going to put themselves through really everyone else to wash others' feet. So this is the perfect opportunity for Jesus to demonstrate his love for his disciples and to reinforce to them that God's economy works in an entirely different way. We read that Jesus rose from supper, removing the outer garments that he had on, and takes upon himself the humble clothing of a servant. He is robed in a towel, armed with a basin of water. And with the tools, these tools of a servant, he begins to perform this lowly task. He begins to wash their feet, wiping them on the towel. He moves around the room, washing each disciple's feet. He doesn't do it in anger. He doesn't do it to make a point. He does it in humble, self-sacrificial love. He would wash all of their feet, even Judas, who would betray him. would you wash Jesus' feet? One author I read yesterday said, I would wash them in paint thinner and light on fire, right? Because that's how we feel, right? But Jesus in self-sacrificial love washes every one of those disciples' feet. In the longest sermon of Jesus recorded in the Scriptures, Jesus said this, Matthew 5, 44 and 45, but I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Jesus not only said that, he lived it out. And it is an incredible picture of humility and grace shown on the night before his sacrifice was to be made for mankind on the cross. And there is in this act, this example that Jesus sets forth, very poignant meaning. We see that in verses 6 through 11, the meaning that comes behind the things that Jesus does. As we continue to read, we run, first of all, in verses 6 through 8, an objection that's raised by one of the disciples. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So as Jesus is making his way around, we are met here with this objection. And again, if you know something of the disciples, then probably the one who objects isn't the one who surprises you, right? Peter always has something to say. In fact, sometimes Peter opened his mouth just so he could switch feet that were in it, right? He's outspoken. He speaks against what's happening. First, he's very embarrassed by what's occurring. And would Jesus, their teacher, their master, their Lord, really wash his feet? Surely not. In fact, Peter should be the one washing Jesus' feet. And and probably, if Jesus had asked him, he would have done so. But he wouldn't have gone and washed the other disciples' feet, right? Jesus assures him that, yes, indeed, this is what he intends to do. And he shares with Peter That there is great meaning here that Peter does not yet grasp. He says, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. See, what Jesus is saying here is that one day, Peter, one day after the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the coming of the Holy Spirit, you're going to understand the picture of what's done here. You're going to understand the calling of these things. You're going to understand my life and my ministry more fully and Peter and the others are struggling now with the realities they're facing, but illumination and understanding will be theirs one day. And like any promise of God, you can take it to the bank, right? As John writes these things, he writes from a different perspective. He writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He writes as one who has understood what has happened. And then, you know, in verse 8, Peter does what Peter always does. He goes, oh, yeah, okay, I understand, right? What's he say? Well, now Peter takes it upon himself to tell Jesus what to do. Right? Well, you're not going to wash my feet. You know, if that's what you think you're going to do, that's not going to happen. Again, imagine telling Jesus, the creator, God in flesh, what he's going to do. Right. Well, that's what Peter says. It's not right. It's not proper. And it's actually very extremely, it's an extremely strong objection. If you look in the Greek, it's actually a double negative that reinforces what, what Peter is saying. He wishes to refuse this act of service by the Lord. Now, perhaps he he thinks he's doing what is right and what's proper. In reality, here he is daring to tell Jesus what to do, but Jesus shows him. There's a deeper and a greater meaning here. He answers him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If Jesus does not wash Peter, Peter has no part with Jesus. Now, Jesus is using this picture to speak of something far greater than washing feet. What he's speaking here is he's speaking to Peter's spiritual state, yet Peter and the others, not quite grasping it yet, only see the temporal meaning. And We'll unpack this a little bit as we go. Separation from Jesus, though, is something Peter cannot abide. Let's keep going and see what Jesus is talking about here with this cleansing in verses 9 through 11. Jesus told him, if, you, if, you, if I do not wash you, have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but it's completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. So what does Peter understand? Peter understands that if Jesus washing me is what it takes for me to be with him that I want all in. He says, I don't want you just to wash my feet. I want you to wash my hands and my head. I want to take a shower, right? If that's what it's going to take for me to be with you, let's do it. I don't want to be separated from you. He wants to guarantee that I want to be in the presence and in the kingdom of Jesus. So whatever ritual, whatever action it takes, I'm ready. And here, Jesus again uses the picture to clarify what is it he's talking about and what is the meaning behind these things. Jesus states that one who is bathed is completely clean. Now, that word bathed has a couple of different meanings. It can mean physically washed, but it's also used throughout the Scriptures in a metaphorical sense to refer to one's cleansing from sin. And here, it's a picture employed by Jesus yet again. Now, Let's take the physical picture. The idea is one who has bathed, so someone who took a bath and went out into the day and got his feet dirty, when he comes back into the house, doesn't need to take a bath again. He just needs to wash his feet, right? In the same way, Jesus says that one who has found cleansing in Jesus from sin does not need any type of cleansing ritual, nor does he need to be cleansed again. Jesus says that Peter and the others, he uses the word here you have translated, are clean. This word carries with it the meaning of being spiritually clean, of being guiltless and innocent. And so what Jesus tells Peter here, there's no need for him to engage in some type of physical ritual. He's washing the disciples' feet as an act of service and an example of how they should serve one another. But he's also illustrating why the Son of Man came to serve them through his death. The disciples, through their faith in Jesus, have been bathed. They have been cleansed of their sin by the Lamb of God. Therefore, they don't need a ritual cleansing to make this effective. Hours from this event... Jesus would bring an end to the sacrificial system prescribed by God in the Old Testament. He would take on sin for us. He would bear the wrath of God and offer all who trust in him eternal life and cleansing from sin. Yet, even as Jesus declares the state of his disciples' faith that's found in him, he calls out the darkness of one in the group. In verse 10, Jesus says, um, he says there, you you are clean, but not every one of you. Now, that, that you there, because again in English we have it, it can mean one or it can mean multiple. This is used in a plural sense in the Greek. So what he's talking about, when he says you are clean, he's talking about the group. That you are cleansed, you are bathed, you have been redeemed. However, there is one who is not. And that one that we we would know, of course, is Judas Iscariot. Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, and so he spoke in this way. So, what do we understand here? We understand that no one is spiritually clean or cleansed without faith in Jesus Christ. It's impossible. You can do all the good works you want, you can attend every program. You can follow every ritual you think will help you. You can give your time, your money, your energy, whatever, but these things cannot offer you salvation or answer the longings of your soul. Only Jesus can save you from sin. Only Jesus can cleanse you. David, who lived long before Jesus came, knew his only hope for cleansing from sin was in God. In Psalm 51.7, he said to God, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. You need only seek salvation in Jesus alone, once and for all. At the same time, after salvation, disciples are still going to sin. How many of you have found that to be a fact in your life? And we don't say that as an excuse, by the way. i get hmm, got to be careful not to go on a soapbox in the middle of a message, okay? But I get tired of, hey, listen, Christians aren't perfect, so stop judging us. We use that as an excuse to do what we want. You understand that, right? Well, I'm not perfect. Listen, you're not, but God does call us to live for him, all right? Now we're going to go back, all right. We still struggle with sin. When you sin, you don't need re-salvation, okay? I remember when my son was, was little and he accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. He was probably around four, close to five. And I remember not long after that, he did something wrong. And we always talk about when we, when we do something wrong, we have to ask, pray and ask God's forgiveness. And I remember that I was confronted with a theology that I needed to teach my own child when he sat down and said, will you please, Jesus, will you please save me from my sin again? So we had a little talk about that, right? Because we don't need to be re-saved, But we do need to be, we do need to, to seek God's forgiveness and cleansing again from our sin, right? What does 1 John 1 9 tell us? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if you know anything about 1 John, it was written primarily to believers, right? So it's talking about the assurance that we have in salvation in Jesus Christ but it talks about the need that that we will have we will have things that hinder our relationship with God and we're going to seek need to seek his cleansing from those things in our lives not because we're afraid of losing our salvation but because we want a restored relationship with God and after salvation there are things then that disciples do in service to the Lord And Jesus is going to teach this in the last part of this passage here. He talks about the lesson that that disciples are to derive from what he does. But I want to make clear once again that the things that Jesus says here, these are not the things that result in a changed life. These are not the cause of a changed life, but they come out of a changed life in Jesus Christ. That's the application here that Jesus makes at the end of this passage. We see in verses 12 through 15, Jesus' example that he has set for the disciples and he instructs them. He says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet for I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. So Jesus, having finished washing the disciples' feet, now returns to his place at the table. And this entire exercise has been a picture, a lesson, an illustration. He wants them to grasp the concept of humble, loving service as seen in his life and ministry. And so what does Jesus do? He questions their understanding. Jesus so often in his ministry uses questions to teach people because questions open the heart while accusations harden the will. Did they catch the meaning of this? Did they truly grasp its significance in their lives? And he graciously then explains these things to make sure they do. They do understand. He says that they call him teacher and Lord, and and that's very right and appropriate. He is indeed their teacher. He has spent three years instructing them in the things of God. He is the source of their instruction. He's the greatest teacher anyone can have but he is also their Lord, one to whom they owe respect. Of course, there's also this idea of the title of Lord is not only always a a formal or respective title, but with Jesus, it has a greater meaning, right? He is the Lord of all. And they have done right to call him teacher and Lord, and they have done well to show him the respect that those titles and positions bring. Yet, though he is their Lord and he is their teacher, he rendered to them selfless service. Here on this night, gathered with his disciples, Jesus rendered physical service illustrative of greater spiritual service that was to come. See, what Jesus has done is he has set an example for them to follow. As he has done to them, they ought to do to one another. "'The disciples, eyeing the kingdom that was to come, "'jockeyed for position. "'They saw one another as rivals to the glory "'and honor that comes from God.' And the synoptic gospels record an incident where the disciples are seen arguing about these things. And in fact, James and John, who are brothers, set off this incident by employing their mom to come and request from Jesus honor for their sons. And Jesus then instructs his disciples on how to be great in God's kingdom. In Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45, we read, and Jesus called to them and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the things that Jesus said there, he's illustrated here in John chapter 13. Greatness isn't found in a position or a title or an aspiration. Greatness, Jesus says, is found in service. This is something Jesus wants his followers to understand. It's something that, honestly, only those who follow Jesus can understand. Because our natural, sinful man only wants to serve himself. In Jesus Christ, though, we are free to serve him, and thereby we serve others. Jesus, the King of kings, came to serve. He served people all throughout his ministry. we have read several incidents in in the book of John of this, and you can read the other Gospels and see him serving others. And at the end of his life, at the end of his ministry, he performed the greatest act of service in that he gave his life for yours. He paid the price of redemption. That's what he talks about when he talks about giving his life as a ransom. He offers his righteousness for your sinfulness, his glory for your punishment. This is the ultimate act of service. It's the ultimate expression of love. And as the example, Jesus now calls for his disciples to do the same. Now, let me make it clear here. Jesus is not instituting some ordinance for the church to observe. He's not saying, okay, now here's what you do. You take your bowl and your towel and you just go wash feet everywhere. He's not calling his disciples to be some kind of foot-washing clan, you know, that walks through the streets. What he is saying is they should be willing to do such things, willing to serve whoever, whenever, and However. So here's the basic truth. There is nothing beneath a disciple of Jesus Christ. There is nothing that you and I, if we're followers of Christ, that we are too good to do. If you belong to Christ, you're called to serve. And so in verse 16, Jesus, having showed them the example, now gives them his calling to these things. He says here, Truly, truly, and again, here's that statement, okay? Mark it down. This is admissible in a court of law. I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So Jesus is making his calling clear that no servant is greater than his master. No, no person who is sent on a mission by somebody else is greater than that person who sent him. He is instead subservient to the will of his master. And here Jesus uses the picture of his relationship to his disciples to call them to service. He says, I am your master, I'm your teacher, I'm your Lord. If I can serve you, you can and you must serve others. Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, came to seek and to save those who were lost. He served us in the greatest way imaginable. How can we do any less for him? So our salvation in Jesus comes with a new calling. Serve God. Yet, our flesh loves the old, well-worn paths of self-service, does it not? Serving the Lord by serving others, what does it require? It requires humility. Humility. It means serving those that we struggle to connect with. It means serving at times that aren't convenient. It means serving in ways that we may not have chosen. As a pastor, I I have opportunities to engage with God's people on a regular basis in areas of service. It's one of the things I love about being a pastor. And I've had conversations with people who say things like, how can I help the church or how can I help you Or, or what can I do? By the way, those are very dangerous questions to ask a pastor, right? And it fascinates me when when someone comes with a spirit of, I want to help, what can I do? And I say, well, you know, we really need to do this. And they look at you and they say, well, that's not really something I want to do. Well, you know, that's really someone else's area that they should be serving in. You understand that service to God doesn't put boundaries or limitations on what we do. Jesus' calling to the disciples is to serve. He doesn't say, Serve within your skill set or serve when you feel like it. He just says what? Serve. Serve your family. Kids, clean up after dinner without being asked and with a happy heart. Help your brother or sister clean their room. Give your brother the biggest slice of cake. Finish the job the way your parents want it to be done, not the way you want it to be done. Husbands and wives, Serve one another. Take that chore that your spouse hates to do and do it to their satisfaction, not yours. Treat them to a night out with no strings attached. Take the kids so your, your wife or your husband can get some things done or enjoy existing in peace. You realize that moms don't exist in peace very often, right? There's always someone touching me, right? That's what I hear sometimes. It's true, okay? Okay. The opportunities to serve one another in a family setting are limitless. We're the ones who limit them. By saying, well, I'm just not going to do that. Well, I don't feel like doing that. Well, I don't... The opportunities to serve one another within the walls of your home are limitless. We should serve our coworkers and our neighbors... Help them out around their house and yard. We bring them a meal. We offer guidance or help or whatever it may be to make the work go faster. We, we refuse in the job to steal credit and glory in a project that would make you look better. All of these things go against the grain of our culture. You realize that serving the Lord often goes against the grain of the world we live in. Serve your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Join together and serve in your local church. Submit yourself to God's calling and expectation to join your local church so you can be used most fully to the glory of God in a local body. Help those in need in your church in in practical ways because the body of Christ is just that. It's a body. It's a family. Jesus calls us to serve one another for the glory of God. And we don't just serve one another when it's convenient or when it serves our own purposes because in reality, that's not service. Right? That's just leveraging things so I can get what I want. Jesus calls us to serve his kingdom. When I was growing up and as I got into college, there was a, there was a college for a while that existed in Wisconsin. It was called Northland, um, Northland Baptist Bible College. I think, Lori, you're familiar with that. And it was in Dunbar, Wisconsin. It's in the middle of nowhere. Like, if you went there, you meant to go there. Okay, Either that or you were really lost. And one of the things that they always did at their graduation is they would hand out towels to everyone who graduated. And emblazoned across that towel was this statement. He who dies with the dirtiest towel wins. And it comes from this. It comes from this passage in John chapter 13. It's it's not gospel. It's not Bible. But it's an important thing to remember. We don't win because we had the the, the garage or or the pole barn stuffed with toys. We don't win because we had nice things in our house. We don't win because our investments paid off. We don't win even because our kids didn't go to jail. We win because we served the Lord. That's what it's about. It doesn't matter if people don't know who we are. People don't want anything to do with us because they don't want anything to do with God. It doesn't matter if, if I get noticed. It matters if I'm faithful to God. He who dies with the dirtiest towel wins. You see, things in the kingdom of God work differently than they do in the kingdom of men. So God, Jesus, God says... This is what you're to do. Just as I have served you, you are to serve one another. You are to serve others for the glory of God. And like anything that that God calls us to do, it comes with a promise of greater fulfillment. Let's close out the passage in verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. God's economy functions differently than ours. See, our flesh wants others to serve us. God calls us to serve others in selfless love that he works in us to produce. See, the greatest thing is this. As a disciple, God calls you to serve other people, and then he gives you the ability and the love to do that. It can't come from you. Maybe you've tried to well up some, I'm just, I know this is the right thing to do, so I'm just going to do it. How's that go? Right? It might go well, all right for a time, but after a while, it's, it's gone. We need God's work in our lives for these things. And so we're convinced that the only way to true happiness and meaning is to put other people below us. But Jesus tells us the only way to truly experiencing such things is through exalting others above ourselves. And that's exactly here what Jesus promises. Jesus says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. What is Jesus saying here? It's not enough just to know this is what I said. You need to go out and do it. You can know a lot of things about God. You can know a lot of things about who he is. You can know a lot of things that you're supposed to do. It doesn't matter if we don't do them. The life of a disciple is more, about no, more than just knowing, it's doing. And if we act in, on his command in obedience, Jesus says we experience blessedness. Blessed are you if you do them. The idea of this word, it carries the idea of being happy or being envied because of the grace that we experience from God in our lives. Number one, we are blessed by a relationship with God if we know Jesus as our Savior. That's the only way to experience a relationship with God. Number two, we are blessed by a vibrant, active walk with God as we obey him. There is no greater joy, peace, or happiness than knowing you have a good relationship with God. An obedience to God that pours out of a changed heart brings you blessing. But if you claim Jesus as your Savior and don't live in obedience to him, it should be little wondered why you struggle to find joy and meaning in life still. It is only as we live out our creative purpose that we find the blessing of these things. In Jesus, as a disciple, you have been recreated for the glory of God. Paul would write in Ephesians 2, verse 10 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As a disciple, you are called to live in obedience to God. And part of that obedience is serving one another in him. The king served us, so let us serve him. Because of Jesus' selfless service to mankind, I must turn to him for eternal salvation and the power to live in service of his kingdom. Jesus, the son of God and God himself came to earth to serve us, his personal creation. You and I have turned away to our own way, a way of sin and death, but Jesus came that we might have life in him. And his ultimate act of service was his willing death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead three days later, guarantees new and eternal life to all who trust in him. God is holy. He cannot tolerate our sin. God is just and he must judge our sin. And in our natural state, we stand as just recipients of the wrath of God that's poured out of his holiness on our sin. But God is loving and gracious and has reached down to us to offer us salvation in Jesus as a gift. And because of Jesus, you can have eternal life. Because of Jesus, you can have a relationship with God. And because of Jesus, you can have a transformed life on earth living for God's glory if you know Jesus, you are a disciple. And Jesus calls for his disciples to live in his strength for the Lord. So here, Jesus vividly illustrates the spirit of service that disciples are to imitate. As Jesus served us in his life and death, so ought we to serve one another. And even as a Christian, your flesh will fight back on this. And you will need to humbly submit yourself to the Lord in order to serve him effectively and consistently. So I, call, I encourage you today to see the glorious love of God poured out in Jesus today. Find hope in him and him alone to live for his kingdom. And ask the Lord to show you those he has given to you in your life to serve. And seek his help to live out that service of him. The king came to serve. Let us serve others for him. Father, thank you for the day you've given us and the opportunity to be here in your house today. Thank you for this church that you have raised up. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the priority that this church has placed on preaching the word of God. Thank you for those who have come to listen to it today, Lord, I assume that most who walk in the doors of a church on a Sunday want to hear the word of God, and I am thankful for that. And we pray that today you would use that word in our hearts and lives. You would challenge us by the things that we have read here. You would show us once again who Jesus is and what he's done and the calling he's placed on the lives of all who follow him. Would you continue to burden the heart of one who has not trusted you as Savior of their need to find faith, trust, salvation in you and you alone? And Would you burden the hearts of Christians here today with a need, a desire, a conviction to serving for the kingdom of God? Lord, wherever we go, in our homes, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, Responsibilities in town. May we look for opportunities to serve the kingdom to exalt you. May we share the love that you have shown to us. We ask now as we close our service today. You would continue your work in our hearts. And you would get the glory and the honor for what's said and done the rest of this day. your name we pray.